Welcome to the show. We're currently on a break, so please enjoy the following selected rerun episode. Welcome to Media and Monuments, presented by Women in Film and Video in Washington, D.C. Media and Monuments is conversations featuring industry pros speaking on a wide range of topics of interest to media makers. Do you like soccer, wedding dresses, and music? Or maybe I should say, do you know Megan Rapinoe, Kleinfeld's Bridal, and Alicia Keys? I'm your host, Sandra Abrams, and in this episode of Media Monuments, I'll chat with Abby Greensfelder, the CEO and founder of Every Woman's Studio. During our discussion, you will learn Abby's ties to Say Yes to the Dress, the documentary LFG about the U.S. women's national soccer team's fight for equal pay, and her latest project, Uncharted, a behind-the-scenes look at Alicia Keys' songwriting camp to help young black and brown women. The mission of her current company is to tell female-driven stories. In addition to making documentaries that support this mission, the studio has also created Propel, an accelerated program to help up-and-coming women media creators in partnership with Real Screen. Prior to starting her current company, Abby co-founded Half Yard Productions, which created a string of hit shows, and she worked at Discovery. Recently, Women in Film and Video named Abby one of its Women of Vision honorees for 2023. Welcome, Abby, to Media and Monuments. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. Well, first of all, I want to say congratulations on being named a Women of Vision winner. So when you were starting your career, I know you got your MBA from Wharton, from the University of Pennsylvania. Did you have a vision? No. I really was someone who always loved storytelling, writing, and I was a photographer, did photography in high school and also in college. And so I think I've thought of maybe photography as something that I love, but maybe is not something that could be a career, probably just because most of my people that I knew in Washington and in my family who had sort of careers were what seemed to be professional careers like lawyers or My mom was a nurse, worked in the healthcare industry. So I really didn't have a vision early in my career of that. But I think as as happens, as time went on, the vision started to appear. Uh, But it wasn't until later. Well, later you worked at Discovery. In fact, you'd worked on a lot of male-oriented type shows. So how did working at Discovery prepare you to leave and be the co-founder of Half Yard Productions. I had what I think was the dream job out of college. I interned at Discovery, spent a little time away working in production, then came back. So it was really my first experience in media. I worked for Discovery for about a decade and came up on the content side of the business. And I think doing what was sort of developing programming for a male skewing audience, it was a broad adult audience, but male skewing, I saw the growth of really unscripted television in that time from when I started Discovery, which was the company's 10-year anniversary. And mostly we were acquiring and reversioning content to by the time I left, we were commissioning original programming, most of its series, these prolific producers who were making hit shows from us. And we were probably doing about 700, 600 hours of premieres a year. 
I looked at that and saw really the growth and success of this industry. And if some of these key producers that we worked with saw that they were really able to run businesses at scale. And I thought, well, maybe I could do that because I had been a buyer and I knew what kinds of shows worked. But obviously being a buyer and a developer at Discovery, I had a fairly limited creative palette with which to tell stories. So I was excited about the idea of broadening that creative palette. And so with a colleague of mine at Discovery, who was sort of my creative collaborator there, Sean Gallagher, he was at the time overseeing content for TLC, and I was overseeing content for Discovery, but we had worked together for years, decided, well, let's go and try and do this ourselves. How hard can that be? Well, of course, there was a lot more to it. Right. <laughs> Things are always harder than you yes. think. Um, but that initial optimism was enough to get us to leave the cushy world of corporate media and set up our own business. But we really grew our business out of our initial um, relationship and history with Discovery because most of the first shows that we did were for Discovery's family of networks. And something like Say Yes to the Dress, which was one of the first shows we ever made, is still uh, still on the air today. And that speaks volumes as to what your thinking was behind why you wanted to start it. Because I was going to ask you, what was the genesis to that? Uh, was it somebody came to you, you were looking for, or were, you know, somebody, you know, was looking for a dress? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Actually, when I was at Discovery, true story, um, there was a producer who came in who I actually gave the idea to. Someone that I know had gone to Kleinfeld and gotten their dress there. And I thought, this is such a great story, like this family-owned business. And at the time, there were a lot of successful shows on cable, like places like Discovery that followed family-owned businesses. We had American Chopper was a big hit on Discovery at the time that followed this sort of family-owned motorcycle fab business. And it, but it was ultimately sort of partly family drama. So I thought, well, if you could do that with a family-owned bridal business, that would be amazing. And I actually gave the idea, because I was working at Discovery, to a producer when I was there, thinking, well, we couldn't do this for Discovery, but you should develop this and pitch this around. So years later, when I decided to leave Discovery, it's one of the first ideas I thought, this would make a great show. And we got in touch with Kleinfeld. And when we went in, I later found out that that producer had actually developed the idea, gone to Kleinfeld, tried to set it up at Lifetime, but couldn't get the deal closed with Kleinfeld um, and Lifetime in order to make the show, mostly because it had to do with sort of brand control and trust with Kleinfeld in terms of how to make the show and make it in a way that was not going to be negative for Kleinfeld. Because, of course, at that time, there were all kinds of reality shows, right? So if you were going to do a show that would show, you know, there was fear, like, what if somebody, you know, hates this dress and it's bad for the brand? So it turned out that very producer I'd given the idea to followed up and actually tried to make the show. But only we, we were actually, I'm very proud, able to establish a trusting enough relationship with Kleinfeld that they allowed us to give us the full access to make that show. And of course, we went to TLC, they were thrilled about it. And sort of the rest is history. The owners of Kleinfeld to this day are dear, dear friends, like that show, the sort of leap of faith that they took, of course, ended up being 
It was great for our business. It was great for their business. It was good business for TLC. And ultimately, you know, we still remained friends after all these years. That's wonderful. I do remember going to Kleinfeld's, but this with, with friends to shop for the dress. I was living in New York at the time. Yes. But we went to Brooklyn yes. before they had moved to Manhattan. And I just remember being on the subway thinking, where are we going? But we had a very specific appointment, though, and we had to get there in time. Yeah. So it turns out, actually, Kleinfeld was a family-owned business. Um, but at some point after the point when you visited and before we did the show, the business had been bought, taken over by uh, Ronnie... Rothstein and Mara Urschel, and they brought the store to Manhattan, totally renovated it. So to us, when we first visited that new store, which was in downtown New York, it's like 18th Street, and went in there and they had a basically almost like a, um, you'd have where you dry clean clothes and they have one of those racks, mechanized racks. They had one that ran two full city blocks in the ceiling holding wedding dresses. And they took us behind the scenes and in the back and showed us that. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And of course, off to the side was a woman like crying because she found her perfect dress. And I thought at that moment, yes, this is kind of getting inside and behind the scenes of this process. But more than anything, it's a show about a rite of passage. And that's why this show is more than just behind the scenes at this family-owned wedding shop. It's really getting into the rite of passage, which is a story we can all tap into, whether we have been married, want to be married, you know, had a child that's getting married, whatever it is, we all can sort of put ourselves in that story. And I felt then, and I still do now, that's part of why it's had such longevity, because it's a story that keeps being told over and over and over again. Now, you're a native Washingtonian. Yeah. Where did you go for your dress? Oh, good question. So it's very funny because people who know me think it's hilarious that I made this show because I'm, number one, growing up was very much a sporty, no-nonsense gal. Um, And actually, when I went to shop for my wedding dress, I was in business school at the time while I was working at Discovery, and I was commuting back and forth from Pennsylvania while working a full-time job. I was very busy. So I managed to set up one appointment at Hanalore's, which was a wedding shop family owned in, in Old Town, Alexandria. I went in and I'm, during my appointment, saw three dresses, picked one, and that was that, <laughs> which is very no nonsense. Yeah, but when you tried it on, did you cry? <laughs> I did not cry. I think I was like, I love this. This is beautiful. <laughs> Let's get it, you know? But uh, Kleinfeld was not on my radar at that moment. Of course, if I had been making the show at the time, I would have gotten the whole princess treatment at Kleinfeld. The team probably would have convinced me to do an episode. But I'm the kind of person, the irony is, you know, I'm kind of low-key, no must, no fuss. So I wouldn't have wanted to do that anyway. That's a great story. Um, So, Nin, you sold uh, Half Yard Productions and you jumped to starting all over again with Every Woman's Studios. Um, What did you learn from selling your company and restarting? That was an interesting journey at the time. So Half Yard was 
in its past its second decade or in its second decade. So we started the business in 2006. We've been running it for about 12, 13 years. And at the time, there was a lot of consolidation. And we very much felt we would have the benefit of being part of a bigger group that could give us sort of more access to international markets and things like that. Um, So we sold our company to Red Arrow, who was a great partner. Um, And around that time, I had stayed, Sean Gallagher, my partner, and I had stayed with the business during that transition. And very much when we sold the business, if anything, I thought to myself, well, I don't want to age myself out of this business. I love what I do, right? I'm not trying to get out of it. Um, But as happens in life, you feel the need for a new transition. I think I had been running the business for a long time. We had been quite successful at it. Uh, I also, as a woman creative executive in the business, felt like there just weren't enough of me out there. And I also felt at the age in my life where I just wanted to do give back in a way in the business and in culture in my own very small way and do projects that were consistent with those values. So even though every project at Half Yard we did, I loved and was very passionate about, but I felt a calling to specifically do something to give back to women in the business and women in culture. Having grown up in DC, I happened to go to an all-girls school in DC. I kind of was raised a feminist uh, in the 70s. And at some point in my life early on, I thought maybe I'd be a women's rights lawyer. It was sort of my parallel other alternative path. So in some ways, it was a coming back to some of that early vision you talked about, the non-vision vision. But I thought, well, I could do some of those same things that I believed in that I wanted to do, but use storytelling to do that instead of, say, advocacy or politics um, or law. So that's really where the idea of Every Woman Studios came from, was just the sense that we all have one life. The older you get, the more tired you get. (laughs) And I thought, if I don't do this now, my sort of passion 2.0, I'll never do it. So I decided to leave the company that I loved with the people that I love to uh, what I thought was going to be take some time off before starting this next thing. And then the LFG story hit. And all of a sudden I felt very called to tell that very specific story. And that got me moving a little earlier than I thought that I would, but it kind of became an organizing principle of the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell and the kinds of ways that I could think about telling those stories. You really scored a goal with that, and your timing was just right because that fight was just starting at that time. Yeah, it was. And I very much felt that was a story that if it was not going to be told, it would be lost because that lawsuit was happening, the World Cup was happening, and I was sure that someone would be covering it just because it was such a big story, I felt. And it touched on a number of things that resonated with me when I had founded Every Woman Studios and I was thinking about, even before I founded it, and I was thinking about, could I do this and how would I orient the company and what kinds of stories I wanted to tell? I thought specifically about what I call content deserts for women, which are areas of stories that just women aren't seen in at all. And of those, going back to my discovery days, they were actually a lot of spaces like the discovery audience would populate with men, like adventure, the outdoors, sports, science, 
history. Those were all genres for whatever reason you just didn't see women in and less women of color, diverse women. So the idea when the LFG or rather the story of the women's soccer team and their equal pay fight, when they announced they were going to sue their employer and enter into this lawsuit, I thought, man, like if ever there was a calling of a story with my name on it, that here's one. Um, I don't think I knew how hard it would be to do, but it was a story that was moving and moving fast. And if I didn't grab it, I felt like it would be gone. So I grabbed it. And what was the thing that said to you, okay, I'm going to hook up with this person. Did you make a phone call? Were you introduced? Did you meet the head of the U.S. Women's Soccer Federation? Like how did that connection come about? Well, it's funny, you know, I think so much of life is relationships and people that you know that come into your life. And this was one where, so not only did I, had I identified this content desert, also I happen to be a soccer fan. Also, I played soccer and I have two girls that play soccer. But one of my very closest friends, Molly Levinson, who was in the movie, as it turns out, was working behind the scenes early on advising the women's soccer team on the communication side around this lawsuit. So I had some visibility to what was going on. And when the lawsuit happened, I asked her, surely someone is telling this story. And she said, no, because of this reason and that reason and this reason, which was really that all the kind of usual media partners who were in deals with U.S. soccer were disallowed from telling the story. And so she was really part of the reason that I was able to get connected to the right people. She put me in touch with the woman who runs the union for the team. Separately, I reached out to Abby Wambach, who was helpful early on in terms of getting to know some of the story and helping to make some introductions. So it was a bit of on the ground hustle and then also relationships and connections that I had into the story that helped get us the initial access. Well, I was reading that you had the premiere for LFG at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2021. Now, almost two years to the month, you're having the world premiere of Uncharted, the story of Alicia Keys, and she's the music songwriting camp. And again, how did this connection come about? And what do you do as you're the producer? What's your involvement on this? Yeah, it is kind of amazing when you say that, (laughs) because you feel like, you know, time just flies with the pandemic and everything in between. But on LFG, you know, I was lucky enough to work with amazing filmmakers, um, The Fines, who are also a local DC-based production company. And we took LFG, made that film, and then took it to Tribeca. At some point after that, the film premiered and was well-received. I was interested in in terms of the other contents deserts, the music space. And I was introduced to uh, one of the people who is on the board of this organization called She Is The Music. And this organization was founded by a number of women, leading women in the music business, including Alicia Keys, um, her partner, Ann Mancielli, a bunch of other women in the music business. And this person who I met said, you should do a story on She's the Music. So I eventually set up a call with 
some of the folks involved, Alicia, her partner, Anne, to hear about what they were doing, to try and see, well, what could this story be? Is there a story here? And in that call, they talked about these camps that they run. And I thought in that moment, well, this would be a great way, much like LFG, we didn't tell all of the story of women's soccer. The finds in that film really focused in on the lawsuit, the women who were leading that fight and telling a human story. Here, I thought, well, the story of women in music, why does Alicia Keys and these other women need to create these songwriting camps? The reason is because only 3% of women are producers, a little more are songwriters, 10% um, in terms of music that makes that gets charted on the Billboard 100. Um, no female still has been producer of the year. So the stats are awful. When they told me that, I couldn't believe it. And when I heard what they were doing, which was running these camps, which are basically set up to pipeline emerging artists into writing songs that get placed with established artists. And I thought, man, if we could immerse ourselves in one of those camps, that would be a great way to tell a human story about kind of an industry issue. Um, And that's what we did. So we were able to embed in their uh, song writing camp, the first camp that they did for all women of color. And we embedded in that camp and then we tracked a couple women's story and details over the next year to see how this experience helped shape their careers following. And it opened up some doors, but it also showed how really just how hard that business is for women and especially for women of color. So we're able to see the journey and to see some of the successes that come out of this endeavor. Yes. Yes. And one of the cool things, this one's neat because sort of the the insight with LFG that I had and part of the reason that I've honed in not exclusively but partly on documentary film for Every Woman Studios is that they uniquely I think are set up to do the thing that I'm interested in which is using storytelling to make an impact in culture and move the needle for women on issues. So LFG was a way to pressure, honestly, U.S. soccer to give women equal pay. But then more broadly, that's had ripple effects, the U.S. soccer fight in international teams. And now FIFA is looking at changing the game. And of course, that equal pay fight can inspire women in the workplace and can inspire women in the workplace abroad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this music story, the goal here is in telling this very small story, we are trying to get some of these women literally on the charts by featuring the music that they wrote at this camp. And in doing that, hopeful that we can shine a light on this issue. But part of the goal of the documentary itself is to get these women notoriety because they're all kind of knocking on the door. And in fact, the entire movie, for the most part, is all the music in it is written by these women. So the movie itself is a way to bring attention to their songwriting and producing and engineering, et cetera. Some of which songs will be performed at Tribeca. Fantastic. That's really exciting news. Well, you're all about empowering women. And I wanted to talk to you about your content accelerated program. I think it's Propel. All right. So now you're in your fourth cycle. You've got four projects heading to real screen in June. 
And I understand the first year winner, um, that project is streaming now on Discovery Plus. Yeah. And that is Prisoner of the Prophet. So mm-hmm. tell me more about that program. And also, I think people who are listening to this podcast, they will want to know how can they apply for future cycles. Propel was one of the first things that I did when I set up the company because in many ways I had two interests. One was to tell stories to fill these gaps by and about women. The other was to support other women in the business because I felt that I had some great mentors along the way. I had some great experiences and had the opportunity to run a business at scale, which meant that I could get stories out there that felt authentic to me, to others, et cetera. So the idea of Propel was a very simple one. Like, let's do in Unscripted what sort of the tech industry and others have done well in these accelerators, which is let's have women bring ideas that they feel are pretty fully formed, meaning you know they have a treatment and a sizzle. Maybe they've got a real idea that they think has potential. And let's pair them each with a established creator in the space. So a female head of production company or a head of development, a big studio, and they'll help shape that idea to help make it market ready. And then we bring network executives, distributors at streamers to get in front of these creators. So they pitch those ideas that have helped been shaped, pre-shaped. So it's kind of a friendly, these are friendly pitches, but it's also a safe way to get them FaceTime with industry execs. And then based on the feedback we get from those executives, we determine a winning project, which then everyone in studios further invests in to take to market and help get made. So the first project, Prisoner of the Profit, Kelly Salloway brought that idea into the accelerator was originally called Escape to Normal. And it was about this woman, Brielle Decker, who had escaped a polygamous cult, the FLDS, and was the 65th wife of Warren Jeffs. And incredibly, having escaped this cult, had set up a home, sort of restitution for other women escaping the cult. Um, actually, the home, she had used the courts to get one of these compounds back from Warren Jeffs, and she was able to donate that and set up this home. So the story was really getting inside her world, telling her story, how she escaped, how she used her own experience to help the lives of others, but also to show that this abuse was still happening now. Like actually today, and I did not know this, there are still women children, adults, men too, in this community that really are being abused, whether, you know, certainly mentally controlled, et cetera. So Kelly brought this project in. We thought it was fabulous. We helped shape it a bit and distributors loved it. We ended up attaching some other elements to it and took it out to market and produced it with uh, Discovery Plus, and it was started streaming at the top of this year and did quite well for Discovery. And that was a great success story because in that you had Kelly, she was attached to the project from beginning to end. She was in all those pitches. She was in the field. She was an exec producer of the project, had co-ownership of the project, economic incentives attached to the project. 
So she had both creative and financial success around the project. And that was kind of the key of the accelerator. So that's like the model is that we try and find these projects where we can have that creator cradle to grave attached. We might have to bring in other people to make it almost bulletproof for these buyers who are very risk averse. But along the way, they get that experience, those credits, so that then next time around, they can bring the project in. Or maybe they partner with a production company who was their mentor or Everwoman Studios on the next project to help get it made. Because as we all know, this industry can be sort of a gate-kept business. It's a relationship business. And it's very hard for these distributors to take a chance on someone new because they have such limited real estate limited dollars and commissions to give out. So the risk of, even if it's a great story, this is an untested producer. Can they deliver? Do they know our audience? Can they make something that will fit our brand? So really we're kind of putting together a new creator with a tested creator and that combo has worked. That's the model. And I would say for anyone listening who's interested, we run this program every year from January to June. So we open up the the sort of portal for applications in January. We review those from about January to March. And then we run the program from like mid-March, April through to June, where we set up the pitches at Real Screen West out in LA. That's what's happening in the next couple of weeks. And then based on that, we have the projects that's a winner. And then we work to develop those projects further afterwards. But the program itself is like a six month kind of from submission to pitch. And that has seemed to work. Like the actual workshops themselves are pretty tight in terms of timeline. I think that works. It keeps everybody focused. So you have Uncharted that's going to be premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival. What other projects do you have uh, coming up that you uh, can talk about? We have some things in development that may be too early to talk about, but One of the things we're working on actually came out of the Accelerator, which is also a feature documentary film by a great young filmmaker. And it's sort of another untold story in the music business and in the prison, touches prison and prison reform. And we've just partnered up with another uh, production company, and we're hoping to get that film financed and produced and like LFG and Uncharted, hopefully, to festivals and also distributed. So we've got a couple other things, something in the women's health space we're working on. I would say these projects are kind of long life cycle and high touch, but they're all kind of labors of love in that way. So they may take a long time and take circuitous routes, but they're meaningful to work on, especially when you feel like you can make an impact. One of the things I want to ask you about is the fact that you're doing all of this in the DMV area. You didn't say, I'm moving to LA, I'm going to be in New York. You're here as a successful um, filmmaker and with your companies. What is that like to be in this in this area and doing it in this uh, your hometown? Originally, it was a good thing because Discovery was here. That's what got me here originally. Of course, Discovery since left the area. So When we were running Half Yard, we also had a New York office that felt important to do both in terms of sourcing great creative personnel, but also to be near a lot of the buyers. 
when I set up everyone's studios, which was before the pandemic, I'd actually thought, because we had started doing some remote editing and producing for Half Yard, and I thought, given what I wanted to do, I was going to be in DC, and I thought maybe a core team, but really we could be anywhere that great creatives were. So I'd actually envisioned the company very much as a kind of virtual creative, creator-driven company. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. It's like, oh, everybody's doing this now. But what I will say has been interesting about being in D.C., especially doing sort of impact-driven stories, is I think that that, in some ways, does have more relevance to D.C. in that a lot of these issues are things that are being talked about or legislated in D.C. And so I find myself, funnily enough, at this stage, maybe having more D.C. linkage um, in that, like we've done screenings for LFG with the State Department and with national organizations of women and other sort of lawmakers in D.C. that are interested in equal pay issues, for example. I think the same could be true of something like Uncharted. We're going to do D.C. doc screening on June 16th. Plug for that. So I think D.C. DC is a place that thinks about issues and ideas. And that's, for me, has always been part of kind of my headspace. I'd say previously working at Discovery and Half Yard, less of what fueled my pipeline. But now what I'm doing at Everyone's Studios, it's more in the Venn diagram because I'm sort of about where entertainment meets ideas and issues. And so DC is in that Venn diagram. Well, thank you, Abby Greensfelder, for chatting with Media and Monuments. Abby's company is Every Woman's Studios. And her film, Uncharted, is going to be premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival. But where can people be able to see Uncharted after that? Well, we're working on pitching out the film to distributors. So maybe the next time you look, we will hopefully be people will be able to see it on a platform streaming soon. But for now, it will be at a bunch of film festivals, Tribeca on the 10th. DC Docs on the 16th. And then we're also at Sheffield Doc Festival in the UK. And we've had a lot of interest actually from film festivals, but I'm, I'm a mass audience gal. I believe in the power of eyeballs. So I'm really motivated to get the movie onto a streaming platform so that everyone can see it. Because I think these ladies' stories deserve to be seen by lots of people. At Abby's company is everywomanstudios.com. Thank you, Abby. And have a good time at Tribeca. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time chatting with me today and for everything that Women in Film does, not just in D.C., but across the U.S. Thank you for listening to Media and Monuments, a service of Women in Film and Video in Washington, D.C. Please remember to review, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. For more information about WIF, please visit our website at wif as in Frank, v as in victor.org.